Clayton asked last week whether or not I routinely spoke more than an hour. Uh, and to your uh, great pleasure, I'm sure the answer is no. So I've tried to make it up to you this week and keep things a little bit more condensed. Um, no promises, however. That is a plan, not a promise. Uh, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to end up in, uh, in Luke 1. Luke 1. So did you ever have a job where you didn't quite know what was going on? So my first couple of, of you know, professional jobs, um, I, I worked for, for, it was all men, um, not to say that it's just men who are guilty of this, but I worked for a, a, a few different men who they knew exactly what was supposed to happen. And they just kind of assumed that, therefore, I knew exactly what was supposed to happen. Except I was greener than grass. I didn't have any idea how to do what it was that they were asking me to do. And so I had to stop every time that I turned around to ask them again and again, so how do I do this? What's the, how do you want me to do that? What's the right way to handle this? And, uh, and, and eventually I learned. Uh, I, I, I do eventually learn, slowly, but I learn. Um, and, and the job got easier at that point. But then I ended up taking a, a, a position for a, a company that regulatory, from a regulatory perspective, they were required to have everything documented. And so there was one book that everything that happened in that company, that, that happened regularly, was documented in that book. And so I was told, do, uh, you know, do procedure X, Y, and Z. And so I could flip in the book to the page for procedure X, Y, and Z, and it was laid out there, step by step, in painful, excruciating detail, exactly how to do that. And so it was so much easier for me to step into that role, knowing that everything that I needed to know was in that book. It was in the site book. I could turn there and find out anything that I could possibly need to know. It was laid out in this, in this clear, concise fashion. Now that, that approach is what um, Luke tries to do in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Now Luke is not named uh, as the author in these books, but all of church history and, and really kind of logic holds that he was the author of, uh, of these two books. He was a Gentile Christian who likely lived in what is modern-day Syria, and he traveled extensively with the Apostle Paul. Uh, and we see that in, in about Acts 16, right? The, the pronouns shift. He, start, he stops talking about they went and did this, and they went here and did that, and he starts saying, we went here, we did this. Um, and he's mentioned by Paul a couple of different times uh, in Philemon 1, in Colossians 4, and then in 2 Timothy 4, at the very end of Paul's life, uh, he, he writes to Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. And so because of Luke's history and all of his travels with Paul and with the other apostles, he ended up at at this stage in his life with all of these little bits and pieces that, would, that were helpful to him as a believer and that he felt would be helpful for other believers to know. Um, and so rather than just tell people 
what they needed to know at any given point in time. Rather than just give them this story or this anecdote when they needed it, he wrote the Gospel of Luke to record the life of Jesus. And he wrote the book of Acts to record the spread of the gospel and the life of the early church. So let's take a look at, uh, at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Inasmuch, that's a wonderful word. I'm going to start using that more often. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke is writing all of, his, all of these two books with the idea of, of being a good steward of what he has been given. Um, now this is the idea that, it, stewardship is the idea that he has been entrusted by God. All of us have been entrusted by God with the things that we have. And we have an obligation to put them uh, to the best possible use. So he had been given all of these stories, all of these eyewitness accounts surrounding the life of Jesus. And he decides here, I can't just let these sit. I can't just keep these to myself. I have an obligation to deliver them to others as they were delivered to me. So he's looking at this as an opportunity to pour into the next generation of believers to ensure that they are taught all of the things that he has been entrusted with. This is the pattern that Paul gave to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, uh, when he said, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And it carries forward this idea from as far back as Abraham, right? That Abraham had been blessed in order to be a blessing to others. He was blessed to be a blessing. And so Luke is passing on this knowledge, these stories that he has been given to be able to bless others. And they might be able to do the same. Uh, now it does say, it does say here that others had undertaken this same effort, right? They had started to compile their own narratives. We've got three others in our Bibles, right? Matthew, Mark, and John. So what, what is it that makes Luke's account special? Why was, it, why was it necessary? Why not just look at those other three accounts? Each one of these Gospels has a flavor, right? It's got a personality to it because it was a real person writing it. And, and, and that personality of that person shines through in some respects uh, in, in the way that they write, in the stories that they choose to include. Um, and, and they all kind of reflect that. And so Luke was, as far as we can tell, a Gentile. He was not Jewish. And so his, uh, his Gentile background and his Gentile audience, the people that he was writing to, influenced how he went about writing. So he takes some time to explain some of the Jewish customs and, and traditions and, and geography. Uh, and there's a, there's a specific focus in the book of Luke on the mission of God to seek and to save the lost, the outcasts, not just from the Jews, but from all people all around the world. 
And so there is less focus on, on Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and more on his being the Savior of the whole world. Uh, now, up until about Acts 16, it, it doesn't seem like Luke was there as an eyewitness. But he felt that this undertaking was important enough for him to go around and to find the eyewitnesses, the people who were actually there, to find out exactly what happened. And there are all of these little details that we'll see all throughout these books uh, that, that hint at some of the people that he, that he went and that he talked to. Um, one of the other things that's kind of interesting about Luke's writing is he's very, very focused on the history um, so almost everything that he relays is tied to a specific point in time and a specific geographical place. Um, and as, uh, as modern archaeology progresses, one of the things that happens is we're finding out more and more that Luke was an extremely accurate historian. And uh, I'm unable to find a single thing that has been contradicted in any sort of archaeological finding but rather every time that they find something that relates to the book of Luke or the book of Acts, they find Luke got it right. He was an extremely capable, reliable historian. And he has compiled all of this writing for this person named Theophilus. Um, now, there is, there is a... Um, a minority opinion here that Theophilus is, is just kind of a generic name. It means friend of God, and so this book is written to all friends of God. But I think that the, the stronger case is that Theophilus was a person. Theophilus was a powerful Roman official, a, a politician or a governor, um, who had become a believer, right? He had trusted in Christ, and he had commissioned Luke to put together this, this written-down, orderly account of everything that pertains to Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the growth of the early church. Um, and it was written, it says here, to give this man certainty. Absolute certainty. Our faith as Christians is not a philosophical invention. Right? It, it wasn't revealed in a vision, in a cave. It, it wasn't the musings of somebody who had, in, who had achieved enlightenment. But our faith is grounded in a specific person who came and did specific things during the specific time in which he lived. Jesus came to earth. The Son of God had come to accomplish the redemption of mankind. He died and was raised again on the third day. These are specific historical events that form the basis of our faith. And so Luke writes, guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, giving us the facts that he has collected. What happened, where it happened, when it happened, and who saw it. So that Theophilus and we may be certain about them. And specifically, he compiled these as a, as a written record so that it could be passed down without distortion or modification. Because it's much easier, right? It's much easier to pass on the written word accurately than it is the spoken word. Have you ever played that game Telephone? You know, somebody starts on one end saying marshmallow and that person whispers it to the next person and to the next person and to the next person and it comes out on the other end mashed potato, right? 
because the spoken word, while powerful, has limitations. It's more subject to, to distortion and modification over time. But the written word is not like that. And so this should give us confidence that the words that we are reading today, after having been translated from the Greek, uh, are the original words that Luke wrote. And so Luke researched the facts carefully. He laid them down on paper carefully. And they have been passed down to us carefully so that we too may have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. Uh, now Luke writes in the time of the early Roman Empire. Now after, you, and if history is not your thing, you can check out for a minute here, that's all right. Uh, so uh, Judah had been conquered by the, by the Babylonians, who was conquered by the Persians. The Persians were conquered by Alexander the Great might remember him from seventh grade history class. Uh, so Alexander the Great came through, conquered the Persians, and, uh, and then after his death, his empire kind of fell apart. Uh, and so there was, there was a short time period there where Israel, uh, where Judah specifically, uh, had been able to, to win their independence. They governed themselves for a time um, until the Romans came along. And as the Romans were wont to do, they steamrolled over this, uh, this poor nation of Judah, Judea, in that time. Uh, and so they conquered Judah, and they set up this puppet king. This puppet king, this king who was nominally Jewish. He was kind of sort of Jewish, but he was under Roman control. Um, and he definitely loved money and power and prestige more than he loved God. His name was Herod, and we had the moniker the Great. Uh, so Herod the Great was the king over Judea. And so there was this uneasy existence that they lived with rebellion and intrigue and this kind of Jewish king and the Roman soldiers and a Jewish people who were trying to figure out what it meant. What does it mean for us to be God's chosen people in the face of Roman occupation and oppression? Um, and so we pick up the story then, or Luke picks up the story then in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we've got a husband and wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth, um, no kids at this point, and he was a priest. Now, being a priest, uh, or at least a low-level priest, was not a full-time job for him. Uh, but rather, they would take uh, two weeks each year, one week um, and then another week six months later, and they would travel from wherever they lived to Jerusalem to serve their time in the temple. Um, and then when they were done that week, they would go back home. And these two, uh, this couple had no children, and they were old enough that none were going to come. That time was past. And to them, in that, in that society, in that culture, at that time, this would have been a source of, of great shame and embarrassment for them. Uh, this would have been seen as, uh, as an indication that, that God wasn't with them, uh, that he hadn't blessed them. And it would kind of raise a question of, you know, is there, any, is there some sort of sin there that they aren't dealing with? 
today, it doesn't carry the same uh, stigma that it would have then. Today, we might be more, um, we might be more inclined to look at somebody who um, perhaps had a failed business or a failed career or a failed marriage in the same way. You know, we're, we're looking down on them because of uh, where they're at. But, but what it says is that this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were faithful, right? They loved God. They loved others. And that didn't mean that they were out sin, that they were without sin, but rather that they knew and they understood the nature of their sin. And they had offered the prescribed sacrifices for their sins. And they had faith. They had faith that God would accept that sacrifice and forgive them. So they were righteous before God. They were upright people. Uh, picking up in, in verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Think rolling dice. Um, it's, it's essentially by chance. And there, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So he was, Zechariah was chosen by lot to go into the temple, into the holy place in the temple and offer incense. Now this was most likely the greatest honor of his entire life. This is something that would only be bestowed on somebody once. This is it. This is the high point of Zechariah's life. And he enters into this, to the holy place in the temple, and he sees an angel. Now, all of the interactions between people and angels that we have in the book of Luke, the one common thread is fear. People see an angel and they are terrified. But the angel gives Zechariah this great promise. I, he, he, he's come to bear news of this great gift, a child in their old age to fulfill a promise made by God to Israel. So one of the things that's kind of unique about Luke is that because he's not writing to a bunch of to a primarily Jewish audience, he's writing to a Gentile audience who didn't know the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, he doesn't so much quote directly from them as he just refers to them. And so, in uh, in the angel's proclamation here, we have echoes of, of uh, specifically the book of Malachi. In Malachi four, 
um, the prophets, or God says through the prophet, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the angel says that, Zechariah, your child is going to be the one to fulfill this prophecy from Malachi, coming in the same spirit as Elijah and leading the people to repentance. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for and waiting for a child their entire lives. And God is going to grant them this desire. And he's not just going to give them you know, an ordinary child, which would be a blessing in and of itself, but a prophet and the greatest prophet who will ever live. Many will rejoice at his coming because he will not just be great in his own right, but he will do the work of preparing the people for the Lord. He will be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. So this is a child who is worth waiting for. This is one of the patterns that we see all throughout the Bible, that God uses the weak to confound the strong. He uses the humble to rule over the mighty, and he uses the childless to bring forth children of great importance. We see that in, in Sarah, right? We see that in Rachel, we see that in Hannah, and we see that here in Elizabeth. Women that the world had written off as, as, as worthless, as pointless, but they were not worthless or pointless in God's eyes. They had great worth and they had great value. God uses unlikely people in unlikely positions to demonstrate his power and his authority over all creation. See, he did this, he does this, not to show that, that these women are strong or special in, in any sort of way, but to show that he is strong. Because the world, the world around them would not take note of, you know, child number five, right? That's just the way of life. That child is special, but there's no, but there's no notoriety there. But when a baby has been longed for for years, prayed for, wept over, and eventually hope given up, now that draws attention. That shows that there is something more at work there, something greater at work there than just basic biology. There is a greater, higher power at work in this situation and through these people. Now how is it, how is it then that Zechariah responds to this great, news. I'm glad you asked. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak uh, and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So Zechariah hears this promise, and he doubts. This is unfortunately a classic response of mankind to humanity. Um, you know, when God says something is going to happen, we list all of the reasons that it can't. Um, and so he starts with that. He says, we're too old yet. It hasn't happened yet. We're past that time. And essentially, he tells the angel, prove it. Prove it. How do I know that you're telling me the truth? 
Now, one of the things that we see in how God deals with people who doubt is he deals with them in proportion to their hearts. Because there is a difference. There is an honest, sincere sort of doubt that, that wants to believe, but it's difficult to overcome all of, the, all of the doubts in our hearts. And for the people who respond like that, he deals, God deals with them very gently. Right? Think of Abraham. Think of Gideon. I mean, how many times did Gideon test God after he said, God, I, I, know that, I know that this is you, but I just need to be really, really sure. And God continues to reassure him because he knows their heart and he knows what's going on inside of them. But there are other people, there are other people who express doubt and incredulity and uh, they don't believe even when they should know better. And God deals with them a little bit more firmly. Um, Zechariah here, the rich young ruler. And so Zechariah asks for a sign. How shall I know this? And the angel says, okay, Zechariah, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. My appearance here in the holy place is not enough for you, so I'll give you a sign. You won't be able to talk until everything that I've told you comes to pass. How's that for a sign? Now, this is a great way to ensure that this story gets around. I mean, because he's not going to be able to talk for nine months plus, right? And so, I mean, think about it. He's going to have to basically carry around a card that says, hey, I'm Zechariah, I'm Zechariah, and an angel said that I would have a prophet baby, but I didn't believe him, so now I can't talk until the baby's born. I'll take a large one-in-one, please. I mean, it, 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 the story is going to get around. There's no way that Zechariah is going to be able to hide what has happened or why it has happened. And so, uh, it, as a consequence here, God is using Zechariah's ill-informed doubt to bring about his own glory, to point people to the power and the work that God is doing in Zechariah's life. Now, Zechariah is still inside the temple at this point, and so we can pick up in, in verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. This was not supposed to be a long job for him. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. So they conceive a child. And Elizabeth points to God and his power in accomplishing this. Doing what Zechariah failed to do in the temple. Now this is one of the, one of the other characteristics of, of Luke's gospel. Is that the women are often portrayed as getting it quite a bit quicker than the men. Which I think speaks further to its historical accuracy. Um, so as we look at this story, poor... Zechariah and his needing to write everything out for the next nine months. Um, there's, there's a question that we can ask ourselves about our own stories. And that question is, whose story is it? Whose story is it? 
Because if we look at our lives like a movie or a play or a book, you can choose the medium that's most applicable to you. If we look at our lives as a, as a movie, we tend to view, our li- view ourselves as the main character in that movie. I am the most important character in the movie of my life. I'm also the writer. I get to decide what's going to happen. I get to chart my course. I'm also the director, the one who, who implements the writer's vision. And I'm the main character. It's all about me. That's the way that we tend to view our lives. But the stories of our lives are not our stories. They're not our stories, but they are a part of this greater story that God is telling in this world. And we're all bit actors. We're all background extras in the play, in the movie of God's redemption of the world. And in this movie, God the Father is the writer, the Holy Spirit, the director, and the main character is not you or I, but the main character is Jesus Christ. It's not your story. Your life is not your story, but rather it's a part of Jesus' story. And Zechariah forgot that, and we forget that. And that was why he he argued with the angel. He said, This is my story, and this is not how this story is supposed to go. I know how my story is supposed to go, and a baby doesn't play a part in it right now. I know how the story of my life is supposed to work, what's supposed to happen, and this isn't it. And so we, like Zechariah, get upset when things aren't playing out the way that we think that they should be. We get angry with God when our lives don't unfold according to our plan. We argue, we fight, we reason with him, we try to justify ourselves because we think that we know best how we are supposed to live our lives. We think that we know best how things are supposed to unfold and we forget that he is God and we are not. And he is telling, he is working out, he is directing a story that is so much more beautiful and so much more wonderful than anything that we could possibly imagine. And we are blessed beyond measure to be allowed the opportunity to participate in that story that he is telling. Now that story is summed up in what is perhaps the the most critical verse in the entire book of Luke. Luke 19.10. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, this great story that God is telling, this great story of Jesus Christ is of a world that has rejected and run away from its creator and and has become hopelessly, irreparably lost with no way to ever be able to find our way back. And God could have left this lost world, this broken world, to wander about in darkness and to one day perish in our lostness. And that's ultimately what we deserved. But he didn't leave us lost, but he sent Christ. He sent Jesus Christ at the cost of his life to seek us, to find us, and to bring us back to him, saving us from our sin and conquering both death and sin in the process, redeeming us and paving the way for us to enter into that new creation, free of the sin, free of the pain and the death that permeates this world. 
This is the great story of Jesus Christ. The most wonderful, beautiful story that has ever been told. And this is the story that we are invited to play a small part in. To play a part in God's redemptive story. But to play a part in that story requires that we give up trying to write our own. See, we have this miserable, messed up, nonsensical script for this movie of our lives that we've been trying to write. And it's a script that we really can and should only be ashamed of. Because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't end up where we think it's going to. But when we give up that script, when we stop trying to be our own writer, our own director, and our own main character, and we return those things to God, where they should have rightfully been all along, that frees us. That frees us to be the actors that he has designed us to be from the very beginning. The, The actors that we were made to be, playing the roles that we were born to play, rather than trying to play somebody else's part. And so Elizabeth's response here, I think, shows that sort of spirit, right? She says that he has taken away my shame, that this is my time, that this is my part, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to play the role that he has given me. But the very first introduction of that character for each and every one of us is that role of a lost person. That role of a lost person. And so we have to be willing, we have to be able to accept the weakness and the failure, the lostness of who we were before we can begin to walk in the joy of that role. Before we begin to play the part that he has cast for us. There's no shame in accepting that role. There's no shame in playing the role that has been written for us. We don't need to fight it or doubt it, but we must embrace it. Yes, I am that utterly lost person that Christ has come for, and I need him as a savior. I need him as my savior. I have led myself into the grave and I need someone to make me alive again. So that is the role that today every one of us has been called to play and to remember over and over again that is the root of all of the work that God has done for us. We were lost, but the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we ask that you would show us. I ask that you would show me. God, the ways that I have tried to write my own script, write my own part. God, the ways that I've tried to make myself the main character in my life and in the lives of those around me. But God, I do not make a good main character. I don't make a good God. I, don't, I should not be the center of anybody's world. 
But Father, you have given us Christ. You have given us your Son to be the main character of our, of our lives, to be the center of our worlds. So Father, we, I ask, I ask that you would be shaping my heart, that you would be showing me what it means to trust in Christ as my Savior, what it looks like for me to play the part that you have given me and to support him in the work that he is doing in this world, to be enabling that, to be a part of that, rather than trying to tell my own story to the detriment of myself and those around me. God, I pray that the work that you have begun in me, that you will be faithful to complete. And I thank you for the joy and the privilege that it is to be a part of that work from now until Christ comes again. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.